Thanks, Cam. Well, reading Ecclesiastes chapter 9, 1 to 10. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears it is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. That the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of children of man are full of evil. That madness is in their hearts while they live. And after they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given to you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks very much to Cam for leading and to Phil for reading. All right. Excuse me while I organize myself. <coughs> Maybe I can say a special good morning to anyone who's with us for the first time today. My name's Clint and uh, happy to be opening God's word here today be very helpful to me and you if you'd have a Bible open at Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We'll be working through that passage together. Before we do that, why don't you uh, join me as we pray to God, ask for his help. <coughs> Excuse me. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd give us faith to receive your word, understanding to know what it means, and the will to put it into practice. We pray, pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, there is a Peanuts cartoon entitled Theology and the Dog. And in the cartoon, Charlie Brown's pet beagle, Snoopy, is sitting on top of his kennel, uh, busily typing away on his typewriter. And he tears off a piece of paper and hands it to Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown reads what it says. It says, as it says in the ninth chapter of Ecclesiastes, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Charlie Brown sort of hands it back to his dog dismissively, saying, what does that mean? And the next frame, the final frame, has Snoopy holding up the piece of paper thoughtfully and saying, I don't know, but I agree with it. 
Now, it is an odd-sounding proverb, I admit, but I think we can actually figure out what it means. Uh, but to do that, we're going to look at the verses around it first. So do you have a Bible open there at Ecclesiastes chapter 9? And we'll look and see what, uh, what the proverb means. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> now, I think if there's something that's defined human progress over our history is that it's, we're constantly trying to know more so that we can control more. Not so. It's not necessarily a bad thing. After all, God commanded uh, back in Genesis chapter 1 for humanity to have dominion and subdue the earth. So it might be understanding better how cows work so that they can be more productive down on the farm. Or it might be Climate data being analyzed more and more carefully so that long-term outcomes can be predicted with greater certainty. It's the same reason we've usually got a smartphone glued to our hands. Because we believe that not just that knowledge is power, but that knowledge is control. If I know enough about something, I can control it. If I can Google it, then I won't be taken by surprise. Isn't that how we, we tend to think? Well, the wise preacher of Ecclesiastes in chapter 9, he, he wants to give us yet another dose of reality. Please look with me at verse 1. He says, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know both are before him. In other words, life is unpredictable. And we just can't know with any great certainty what's going to happen from one moment to the next. Sometimes it's good unpredictable. You know, when you, when you bump into an old friend that you haven't seen for years, or when you find that thing that you thought you'd lost forever. But other times it's bad unpredictable. The weather messes with your plans to go to the beach. A flat tire messes with your plans to meet someone. Or a housing boom messes with your plans to buy your first home. Or a phone call from your doctor replaces your immediate plans with urgent treatments. Last Wednesday, I had the worst migraine I've had in a very long time. It wasn't in my diary. But the four meetings I had to cancel were. Life is unpredictable. There's nothing that we can do to guarantee certainty from one moment to the next. Why is life so unpredictable? Well, the answer is there in verse 1. The preacher says, because it's all in the hand of God. By implication, not in ours. It's a consideration the preacher began back in chapter 8. So if you've got your Bible open, just flick back to chapter 8, verse 16, a few verses earlier. It says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom, to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know... He cannot find it out. You see, in this life of mist, we just can't see far ahead enough to know exactly what's going to happen. 
Because in the words of chapter 5, verse 2, God is in heaven and you are on earth. God has a plan and purpose for everything under heaven, but we just can't stand back far enough to take it all in. Chapter 3, verse 11, also, he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That's why life is unpredictable, basically, because we're not God. Of course, there is one thing we can anticipate with absolute certainty, and that's that everybody dies. <coughs> Excuse me. In our world, 6,300 people die every hour. 152,000 people die every day, and 55.4 million people die every year. And no one escapes. In fact, one day, each and every one of us will become a number in those statistics. It's guaranteed. But there's something the preacher has also noticed about death in verse 2 and 3. He's noticed that we can't do anything to avoid it. Love or hate, righteous or wicked, good or evil, clean or unclean, religious or not religious. As one commentary said, morality is no protection against mortality. You know, we've all heard stories of the dedicated young mum who dotes on her family and would give the shirt off her back to help a friend tragically killed by a drunk driver one sunny day. We've also heard the stories of the cutthroat property developer who lives life in the fast lane of drugs and alcohol and serial affairs and chronic dishonesty, dying peacefully in his sleep at 93 with millions in the bank account for his ex-wives to fight over. And yet, they may both lie side by side in very similar wooden boxes in the same cemetery. Or if they were cremated, could you tell their ashes apart? I've done a number of funerals, and there are always times of mixed emotions. But the more, I, more funerals I conduct, the more I am really struck by, by one thing, that almost everybody's life can fit into a three-and-a-half-minute PowerPoint slide presentation with Sarah Brightman's Time to Say Goodbye fame over it. The 17th-century English poet and playwright James Shirley wrote a famous poem called Death the Leveler, in which he writes, Scepter and crown must tumble down and in the dust be equal made with the poor crooked scythe and spade. Death certainly is the leveler, and it treats us all the same. Shirley himself had said he, he died of fright in the Great Fire of London in 1666. No one gets out alive. Ironically, the only certainty in an uncertain life is death. And you know, it's not a stretch to say that the preacher of Ecclesiastes is actually offended by this idea that everybody dies. In verse 3, he calls death an evil. And yes, we, we ought to be offended by death because it's not the way God designed life from the beginning. It's an unwelcome intrusion into life. Those who have lost loved ones know this to be only too true. No one welcomes death. We grieve. 
but it's our sin that invited death into the world back in Genesis chapter 3. And now it's unavoidable, as the preacher recognizes at the end of verse 3. Also, the hearts of the children of man, children of Adam, are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Now, I realize that these things aren't pleasant things to talk about on a nice sunny Sunday morning. They're things we try to ignore, try to live as though they weren't true, as though life, yes, was predictable, and yes, the death, I, I might escape it, I won't die, I'll live forever. But the truth is that life is unpredictable, and then you die, says the preacher. But that's not all he's come to realize, because he knows that having the certainty of death brings other things clearly into focus. Which brings us to Snoopy's proverb in verse 6. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Let's read from verse 4. But he who is joined with the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy had already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. In other words, while there's life, there's hope. Now, interestingly, that that little phrase has been attributed to everyone from Cicero to Stephen Hawking. And I think Hawking would know. Because even paralyzed and slumped in his motorized wheelchair, as long as he was alive enough to move his eyes so that his little talking computer could work, and that he could breathe, and that he could use his brain, he had something to live for. Better than a dead Olympic athlete. As for the proverb, of course, the lion was the most majestic animal in King Solomon's day. And in many ways, it still is. I've actually had the privilege of standing face-to-face with a a male lion. Thankfully, there was a very sturdy fence between the two of us. But, you know, with piercing yellow eyes and wearing its mane like a crown, and it's got paws the size of dinner plates, they truly are awe-inspiring creatures. I've also seen a lion in a museum, stuffed, looking a bit neglected, unkempt, mangy, Um, To be honest, it was a bit of a letdown, and it didn't seem to be having all that good a time of it either. Certainly, I didn't need a fence between myself and that lion. The dog, back in Solomon's day, um, by contrast, wasn't Charlie Brown's pet pooch. Uh, It was the lowest of animals, a dirty, opportunistic scavenger. But as long as the dog's breathing, he beats the dead lion. I was trying to think of a modern Australian way of thinking about this, and I guess you could say a living bin chicken is better than a dead wedge-tailed eagle. The preacher's point, of course, is that if we live with death in mind, realizing that each new day we draw breath brings new hope and possibilities, we'll be careful not to waste the life we have chasing the life we wish we had. A living dog is better than a dead lion, isn't it? Which brings us, really, to the preacher's next point. Because if life is unpredictable and death is certain and it will treat us all the same, no matter what we've done in life, 
Well, what shall we do with this hope that we've got while there's still light in our eyes and breath in our lungs? The preacher's answer is actually a simple one. He says, enjoy life. But let's not jump to conclusions. The preacher has already tested pleasure and found it lacking. It doesn't bring meaning and purpose in life. So why does he recommend it here? Well, let's look at the section carefully. Please follow with me from verse 7. He says, Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Just a note, Sheol is the Hebrew word for the place of the dead. It doesn't necessarily mean heaven or hell. It means where you go when you die. Uh, and it's very interesting if you think back about ancient cultures. A lot of them had very developed ideas of the underworld and all sorts of things. For the Hebrews, it's not like that. It's Sheol, place of the dead. And after that, you meet God. Nothing more than that. But why does he recommend pleasure? Um, why does he recommend enjoyment, the, the preacher, in this time that we have between our first and last breath? Well, the key to understanding what he's recommending is actually there in verse 7. For God has already approved what you do. Now, essentially what this means is accepting contentedly from God those things he has already given for us to enjoy. Those things that have God's pre-approval. Not to misuse or abuse them, but in proportion, verse 9, to how God has given them. And Douglas helpfully explored this with us last week in chapters 5 and 6. One commentator even suggests that this is the nearest the preacher comes to a, a doctrine of justification by faith. But enjoying these things that God has already approved, it helps to explain the particular list we have here. These are all simple things, things that find their roots in God's good creation. Food, clean clothes, having a wash, that's what the oil on the head is about. Family, work. So because life is unpredictable and one day we'll die, the preacher's recommending we stop and gratefully enjoy the food we get to eat as a gift from God. The opposite of this, perhaps, is, is desperately and functionally inhaling a breakfast bar and an iced coffee in the car on the way to work. Does anyone actually enjoy doing that? Does anyone ever remember to say grace before they do that? Because life is unpredictable and one day we'll die, the preacher's recommending we stop and gratefully enjoy being clothed and looking after the bodies God has given us. I know it might sound a bit unspiritual, but I think really that's what the Bible's saying here. Because life is unpredictable and one day we'll die, the preacher recommends that we stop and gratefully enjoy the families God has given us. 
especially our husband or wife if we're married. The opposite of this, of course, is neglecting our families for the sake of work or entertainment or other relationships, only to discover that when we want them or need them one day, they're no longer there. There's wisdom in regular family mealtimes around a table together, instead of allowing our homes to become like train stations, with everyone always rushing past each other. And perhaps on a deeper level, there's an encouragement for those who are married to stop and gratefully enjoy love with our partner emotionally and spiritually as a gift from God and to continue doing that as we move together through all the days of your mist-like life that God has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life. Verse 9. Do this rather than chasing pornography or erotic books and movies and uh, online flings, workplace affairs, because... God has certainly not approved those things. But what he has given you is enough. Enough to enjoy. In summary, life is unpredictable. Death is certain. And while we have the hope of life, let's enjoy those simple things that God has already given us to enjoy rather than obsessing over those things that God has not given us and being robbed of joy. It's not an idea that's unknown in the New Testament either. Consider 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now, even the preacher in Ecclesiastes realizes that the pleasures of the simple gifts of God only take us so far. We heard that last week. Because we must all die, we must also all face God's judgment. The preacher has already told us this back in chapter 3. He said, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and every work. Chapter 3, verse 17. Later in chapter 11, he will tell us, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, Let your heart share you all the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. This also reminds us that the preacher is no fatalist and no secularist either. There's even a sense in which God's judgment is where the hope is in the whole book. Because he knows that God's judgment is where the simple enjoyment of God's gifts and the fear and obedience of God, it's it's where that wisdom will finally be vindicated as what is pleasing to God when God judges. But of course, the preacher could only see so far into God's plans and purposes. And you know, we know something even the wise preacher didn't know. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's plans and purposes. So if you've got a Bible with you, please turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 11 in the New Testament. What we're going to find here is that Jesus shows us how in the uncertainty of life and the certainty of death, He offers certainty of life after death. Now, of course, chapter 11 of John is well known. It's where Jesus' close friend Lazarus gets sick. 
and eventually dies. It's a passage that I've preached often at funerals. So Jesus hears that Lazarus has gotten sick, and of course, he's got his reasons for waiting until after Lazarus is dead before going to Bethany to see his family. But I think what's very important to notice is Jesus doesn't come in and correct what the Old Testament preacher has realized. We've got to be very careful that when we read Ecclesiastes that it's showing us this is the wrong way to live, and Jesus is now going to show us the right way to live. It doesn't work like that at all. Jesus' behavior in Bethany actually shows that he agrees with the preacher that death is an evil in all that is done under the sun, from chapter 9, verse 3 of Ecclesiastes. In verse 33 of John 11, when Jesus sees Lazarus' grieving sisters, we're told that he is deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And even, in verse 35, that Jesus wept. Jesus doesn't accept or agree with death any more than the preacher does. It offended him as an intrusion on God's gift of life. And Jesus knows that in a few hours he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. It doesn't make him any happier with the idea of death. But then he has this amazing conversation with Lazarus' sister Martha, where Jesus tells her in verse 25, have a look there with me, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Actually, when we're faced with a life of uncertainties, except for the certainty of our own death one day, this is the question that all of us have to answer while our hearts are still beating. Remember, he who is joined with the living has hope. Because while we're still alive, we still have the opportunity to answer this question. And Martha shows us the right answer in verse 27. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God, who is coming into the world. You see, to have certainty of life beyond the uncertainty of this life and the certainty of death means recognizing that Jesus is who he and the rest of the Bible says he is. God's promised king and rescuer who overcomes death. And then entrusting ourselves to him completely as our Lord. And let me say to you, if you've never come to that place this morning where you've done that, where you've closed with Jesus and you say, yes, you are my Lord, you are my hope, well, why don't you have a chat to a, a trusted Christian friend today? Maybe come chat to myself or Cameron after the service and we'd love to help you and pray with you and answer any questions you have. But remember, while you are still alive, there is hope. But if we have Martha's faith, it does invite further questions. If we share Martha's faith in the Lord Jesus as the resurrection and the life, well, how will that change the way we live now? How will it change the way we face the uncertainty of life? And how will it change the way we face the certainty of our own death? 
hopefully, hopefully, with contented enjoyment of the simple things God has generously given us, completely secure in our relationship with him in Christ forever, and with eager expectation of better things to come when we finally see Jesus face to face. How about we pray? It's sometimes worth reflecting quietly after we've heard God's word, so I'll give some time for that now, where you may want to think, reflect, or perhaps even do business with God yourself, and then I'll lead us in prayer. pray. Almighty God, we recognize this morning once again that you are God and we are not. You know the end from the beginning and our times are in your hands. Father, forgive us for living as though we can control every outcome and for living as though we will never die. Father, I pray that hope in the Lord Jesus Christ as the resurrection and the life would give us the grace we need to face the uncertainties of life and the certainty of our own death with daily grateful enjoyment and contentment with what you have given us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to move straight into our service of the Lord's Supper now. Um, if anyone does not have one of these little Lord's Supper packs, now would be a great time to put up a hand and we'll make sure you get one. I'm going to invite them.